Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman of Bohemican.com. Tonight we take a look at one of the more interesting rulers of Europe, a man some have said to be ahead of his time, and yet others have called him incompetent, none other than Prague's very own Rudolf II. Holy Roman Emperor of the Habsburg Dynasty, born eight, July 18, 1552, and living to 1612. So Rudolf's mother was Maria of Spain, an archduchess and a very strict Catholic from the Spanish kind of Habsburg line. And in his childhood, he witnessed a cruel burning of heretics while living in Spain in the, in the Spanish court. Undoubtedly, uh, this really affected him and his viewpoint of religion, uh, which kind of foreshadows what we're, we're talking about tonight in our program. Yeah. Uh, this man was, was forged by this particular moment, many historians say, of watching heretics being burned alive, which unfortunately was, in, was uh, not an uncommon occurrence in Europe during the 16th century. This kind of soured him a little bit on the energy that the Catholic Church had on ridding Europe of witches and heretics. Wait, you didn't, you didn't see any burnings when you were a kid? Uh, no, no burnings when I was a kid. Um, okay. I, I, I'm not that old, but I will tell you <laughs> that, 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 um, that Rudolph himself would, would carry this baggage, this emotional baggage with him, mm-hmm. um, and it would color the way he would lead or rule over the entire part of the It had Europe. a huge effect. Yeah. Probably about the age of 10 when Rudolph was, um, uh, took a snowbound journey from Vienna to Prague for the coronation of his father, Maximilian II. And while in, in one of the taller buildings at the time in Prague had a beautiful viewpoint over the Latava River of the skyline of Prague. There's a lot of nice views in Prague. Yes. Even in the 21st hilly, century. Hilly city. And I think at this point, the age of 10, from some of the writings that we found uh, from Rudolf, that that was the moment that he had Prague in his mind for the rest of his life. Because this mm-hmm. is somewhat unusual for a Viennese yeah, so to say Prague's going to be that's, my home. That's, uh, yeah, it's actually very unusual. A couple of things that, that make his reign unique among the Habsburg. So, I mean, earlier you mentioned the, the burning of heretics. So, this, so we mentioned he was tolerant later in life, but to an extreme extent compared to his peers. So he was tolerant of Protestants, um, Jews, including, I mean, going so far as occult and science, which wasn't unheard of, but this was where, you know, he had the largest Jewish community, the really famous Protestants at the time, heretics, etc. And we'll, we'll talk about that in a minute. The other thing is there are very few chose Prague over Vienna, especially the Habsburgs. Um, you know, there's Charles IV, which was very famous, but he wasn't a Habsburg, right? And actually, you know, he wasn't. So, For our listeners that are uh, maybe experiencing a, uh, this history as a, as a new history for themselves. In Czech Republic, there are two main emperors that get a lot of the headlines, and that would be Charles IV and Rudolf II. They had some commonalities. They were very powerful figures uh, in Bohemia, but they really, could be, uh, they really couldn't be more different 
in, oh, yeah. in many ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So I just want to give you a little background, including there royal royal heritage, royal heritage, but also how they how they went about leading their own. Yeah. This, I think this the, only, region. the only thing they had in common is they were they were Holy Roman emperors. Yeah, about that point, and yeah. that's where it divides. Yeah. So once once Rudolf did choose Prague and moved into the Prague Castle, one thing you can say about him was he had a, and this is this is really noteworthy actually, is that he he was a collector. He had a huge collection of all kinds of things. We'll, we'll get into that, but one thing I, I love to mention is, um, well, first of all, his collection was very private. He didn't let anybody see it, like to the point where very few people actually saw it at the time when he was alive. Um, and you can, you can still see the building where his collection was in, in Prague now. It, it contained works by very famous artists like Durer and Bruegel. Um, and then way ahead of its time, there, uh, Giuseppe... Arts and Boldo, I'm going to call it like proto-surrealist paintings, and I believe you'll have one of his some examples on your blog on it, your it, website. It actually be on Bohemican.com. Uh, yep. You take a look at that. But I know you. I would I love, highly uh, recommend. A lot of our listeners have seen this. It's the, oh, yeah. it's the combination of fruit and they, vegetables they that make a man's not, face. In fact, if you've seen <laughs> this painting, yeah, if you've seen this painting outside of the context, um, you're going to think it's like 1920s surrealism. Right, because you just mentioned the the fruits and vegetables that makes up a face. There's one of like insects making up a face. Yeah, definitely. Look at look at the thing. Um, he, but but beyond that, you know, Durer. Everybody knows uh, you need these really famous etchings. You know, one of a one of a kind at the time. And uh, he supported the northern mannerist style. Commissioned several paintings himself. We'll talk about why the surrealist paintings might be important in a, in a little bit. So. Keep that in mind, that, that this style of paintings was important. Uh, so what else did he have his, in his collection? One of them was the Holy Grail, which you can actually see in Vienna today at Mechanical uh, Devices. Did, did you see that? I did. I yeah. actually, I was, I was down there last summer and uh, um, really had a great experience looking at um, so many things. Charlemagne's sword. So uh, Indiana Jones, you could have just told him, dude, it's, 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 it's based, in Vienna. Uh, it's an, I know, it's an, amaz- it's an amazing place of things that uh, are relics from medieval Europe. And one of those was the Holy Grail, uh, and one also of, one of several. One we should of several, say, because yeah, yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> not it, the Holy Grail. They used to a say Holy that Grail. Crusaders would bring back slivers of the original cross that Christ yeah. was crucified and, upon. Yeah. There'd be enough slivers of wood to build a cathedral. Mm-hmm. That gives you an idea what the the, uh, the issues of this. But the Holy Grail, mechanical devices, musical instruments, clocks, waterworks, astrolabes. Compasses, telescopes, and other scientific instruments. Yep. He really had an affinity for uh, uh, perpetual motion machines. It was a collector of coins. Very interesting things that he would collect. He would, if you were to put it into a 21st century perspective, he would be a 16th century Michael Jackson. And, 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 and uh, is, would, is that strange to say that? Uh, well, think about this. At, at one point, considering how private this all was, too, which is, this yeah. was very private, just like Michael Jackson. <laughs> I can't believe we're going down this road, but this is interesting. Just follow my breadcrumbs, okay? <laughs> so, so if you can imagine this, if you came to Prague Castle, yeah, all right. This cat was crazy, man. All right, Rudolph was a little nuts. Uh, he would actually collect animals and let them wander through the hallways. Oh yeah, this included yeah. cats, big cats. Yeah. Uh, that would include peacocks. Um, and all these other types of animals, as well as this collection we just talked about, not unlike Michael Jackson and his Neverland Ranch. Mm-hmm. So if you can uh, kind of in, get an idea of Michael Jackson, <laughs> the king of pop, was uh, the Holy Roman Emperor of the 16th century, they kind of shared a lot in common with Rudolph. He was eccentric, maybe to say mm-hmm. the least. So, so what, what else? You didn't even get to 
the best parts of the Okay, of the here's the stuff that I'm going to have to have you suspend belief for some of these things. But um, there's, there's the Czech legend that uh, the Premlicid dynasty was begun uh, by a, uh, a princess, a pagan princess by the name of uh, Libyshe. And Libyshe looked for a plowman. And uh, the plowman uh, was, was supposed to be of uh, humble beginnings. And that was going to be her new king. He became the new king, and they started the Primalsid dynasty. Okay, and th- these creation myths or these these old you got you got to we'll have to do an episode on that because yeah, there's, there's quite a few. Ab- absolutely, but. and I, I think I think um, he needed that connection in his collection, so he actually had the Primalsid's peasant cap mm-hmm. that this farmer supposedly had worn. <laughs> he also had two nails from yeah. Noah's Ark. I wonder how uh, much he paid for those. Yeah, that'd be interesting. Ouch. I, I think he would have given anything for them. <laughs> yeah. um, a jaw of one of the sirens from Homer's Odyssey. Now, that one's authentic. Okay, right. that, that makes sense. Yeah, not so not, much. I, well, it, are, weren't the sirens the ones that would sing to sailors and have yeah. them crash in the Exactly. Islands? So, yeah. So, yeah. so uh, the captain from, from the Odyssey had himself, like, tied to the mast so that he could listen to the <laughs> sirens right. but not... And not be drawn in. Yeah. Uh, as, as a quick side note, it probably would not surprise me that he would have the skull of an elephant in this collection. Many people in medieval Europe would actually think that the Cyclops legend, by the way, Say it was a, comes yeah. from when uh, uh, sailors would, would travel to North Africa where elephants uh, were and would see the, the big orifice where the, where the nasal cavity would yep. be. And they would just assume, oh, that must be the skull of a Cyclops. These traditions would, would, what, would what play else, into what, what, what basically Rudolph would really dig. And so yeah. I think uh, that's one of the things that would probably be, have a nice place in his collection. He also had a unicorn horn. Also authentic. Also authentic. No doubt. Yeah. And I believe that's also something that you might see in the, in, uh, in the Vienna Museum uh, that uh, is in, in, in display. You saw that one too? Is it's, that... about the size, it's, it's about um, so it's like eight, an... eight, seven feet tall. So what, feet is, tall. what is it really? Well, it's actually um, carved wood, I believe. Oh, okay. Uh, I was thinking like an ibex horn or you know, something that's, that's like straight but cur, you know? Like... You know, uh, some, some say it might be the horn of a Norwal. I, I, to be honest with you, okay. I really don't know. Yeah, I kind of passed yeah. by it pretty quick. It's, it's information overload uh, when oh, you go yeah. to Vienna. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. But uh, I, I, I think that any of us would have paid uh, a, a king's ransom to take a look at what what yeah. Rudolph II had in his collection. Man, I'll, and unfortunately, it's lost to history. I'll tell you one of my favorite things that's, that's still famous today, uh, which is more of a mystery than some of these other, you know, obviously, obvious forgeries. The, the Voynich manuscript, this is in his collections where it first pops up in history. Some listeners will definitely have heard about this. The thing is, so it's, it's, it's known as the world's most mysterious manuscript. It's 240 vellum pages, mostly with illustrations. And these illustrations are like plants, kind of herbal manuscripts from the, well, in the style of the 1500s. So it's assumed that it's, it's, which makes sense given that that's Rudolph's time. It's about, you know, straightforward so far, right? So you got a book of plants, of these illustrations. But the thing is that all the, all the illustrations, information about plants, it looks like they're for medical uses and such things. However, most of these plants don't exist at all. They're not known species. And the script is in a language that to this day is unknown and undecipherable, including um, it's been, so it might just be random made-up letters. Um, no one knows, even now. And it, it, po- professional amateur cryptographers have tried to, you know, decipher this, like thinking that it's some cipher text, like a code, including like pretty known uh, World War II 
cryptographers and everything, they've given it a shot, not been able to do it. One theory is that it's just a random, made-up language just to mess with people. And, you know, it is, that is definitely a possibility that we'll just never know because it doesn't mean anything. But that's not the only really still famous book that's in there. No, I, I would tell you that uh, many of you probably have heard about this, but the Devil's Bible, the Codex Giga, um, really an amazing piece of work. Yeah. To give you an idea about how physically big this 13th century piece of work is, it's the largest known medieval manuscript at 92 centimeters. It's 36.2 inches tall, 50 centimeters 19, or 19 inches wide, and 22 centimeters thick. That's about eight and a half inches thick. It's composed of 310 leaves of parchment, allegedly made of the skins of 160 donkeys, or uh, perhaps maybe calf skin. But what's so, on this... Yeah, let that sink in. Yeah. 160 animals died for a book. Okay. So, I mean, think how... It's... Um, did you say the weight? I mean, it's... it's. No, I don't think I said the weight. Uh, it's... it's I, I heard it's like it's uh, like 50 kilos, so like 120 pounds. So here's here's the story. Benedictine, a Benedictine monk in in uh, Moravia, which is this southeastern part of Czech Republic today, at one of these monasteries, had had a huge trans, transgression against the monastery and his and his fellow brothers. Because of this, he was sentenced to death. He pleaded for his life with the brothers and and said, "I will finish this Bible and put this Bible together with my hand." and write it from beginning to end, also putting in all the knowledge we have at the time. And that would be not just the writings, but also uh, illustrations, everything that we know. So he made this agreement that he would get it done. And it would show favor to the rest of the brothers in the monastery, and through God's grace, he'd be able to accomplish this miracle. As he was writing, he knew that this wasn't going to happen by dawn. So he made a pact not with God, but the devil. Mm-hmm. The devil appears... And says, okay, you know what's going to be in return if I help you with this. And the monk says, yes, my soul. Okay, deal done. <laughs> and lo oh, and behold, that old story. That old yeah. story. And, and lo and behold, the sun comes up and this giant Codex Giga is yeah. completed. Um, that uh, uh, much to the surprise of the brothers. And he winds up living uh, for the rest of his life uh, till, that, till uh, his natural demise. So... This book had already a history to it in the 13th century by the time that Rudolf II was looking to hold right. on to it. Yeah. Um, That's why he sought it out. I if mean, you were to look, is, at, yeah. it, look at these pages, it is beautifully uh, um, illustrated. Yet, as you, fur- you go further into the back, you'll see uh, things that are a little less um, artistic, to say, uh, if I can say it nicely. It, it was rudimentary. Uh, but some of, some of the designs had a, a, a picture of a demon or uh, a devil uh, that was the size of, of a whole page. Mm-hmm. It, it, it did take a lot of time, but here's where the science comes in with this particular uh, devil's Bible. If you were to make the person not sleep, this particular monk not sleep, and have him write as clearly and as legibly and as accurately with straight lines, it would take over 20 years of, mm-hmm. of nonstop work. Evidently, the devil had to be part of this. Yeah. <laughs> right? right? The, the book today is actually located in Stockholm, Sweden. When is I was, that, when I was all... recently there in Stockholm, I wanted to go see it. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it's very hard to witness, to, to actually see this book. Um, it's a little bit of a, of a political hot potato now between the Czech Republic in the 21st century and the, the nation of Sweden because they took the devil's Bible. And it took two Swedish soldiers to actually take the Bible in their hands, that's how heavy this Bible was, and walk it back under guard back to Stockholm. 
So Man, that's a that's, long trip, by the way. Yeah. Those, <laughs> so so uh, they hold it to this day. Yeah. Just to give a couple more details of, of what's in the book, there's there's just so much, so many things in there. It's like there's medical works um, of Hippocrates, Theophilus. Um, there's you mentioned the the whole page devil's portrait, basically, and then on the flip side is kind of some some angelic thing. So you know, good and evil. Um, it's the whole thing is written in Latin. But there's some Hebrew, Greek, Slavic alphabets, um, Cyrillic and Glagolitic, which are both Slavic alphabets. There's just so many things in there. The, you mentioned the whole Chronicle of Bohemia, basically, like or you know, Cosmos of Prague's Chronicle of Bohemia. The the list of the brothers of the monastery is just this huge thing. There's conflicting reports on whether it was one person over 20 years, or some some people now say it's actually different handwritings. At the time, yeah, they just figured, oh, this is, you know, one handwriting, one person wrote this. How is that possible? It must be the devil's work. So Rudolf brought these things to the castle. It was, at the time, one of the greatest art collections. He also went around the whole realm, which which mostly was Austro-Hungary, but, but uh, you know, included the whole Holy Roman Empire, and collected minerals himself. So he had a great mineral collection that, that people could actually come to Prague to study some kind of geology and, and these kind of things. What's interesting to me is that he had his own alchemist lab. We'll talk a little bit more about the alchemy in Prague that he brought. To get an idea, his court was very, very open for people that uh, would be unsavory <laughs> uh, or, or probably killed at the, at the first, first sight of in other courts oh, at, yeah. at the time. Yeah. He actually invited the alchemists. Uh, he invited witches. He invited sorcerers and soothsayers. Um, he embraced them. This is give you folks an idea. This was a time, uh, I guess you would call it a progressive thinking. Now you would think that all this belief in the occult would would uh, probably spell the idea that uh, he was a little unstable. Uh, you might not be far off the mark. Uh, you know, Rudolf II uh, had been known for his mental illness, and I kind of give you an idea of the man, his personal life himself. He really didn't fancy the ladies too much. He was betrothed at one point to his cousin uh, Isabel didn't really work out. He didn't really kind of focus on that. She actually wound up marrying his younger brother. But he did have... A you know, that's just, I got to say, that's not right. It's like, not right. So everything you just said. Okay, anyways. Yeah. Well, <laughs> not, not to say that he was completely asexual, but let's just say the fact that he had other things that he wanted to focus on. We mentioned some of those already. Other other priorities. Other yeah. priorities. However, he did, he did have a dalliance or two, uh, one in particular with the daughter of a very famous painter that was in uh, mm-hmm. his royal court. And uh, had at least one child, but unfortunately that child probably shared in some of his dementia. Uh, it was reported that his, uh, Rudolph II's son had married a woman and cut her to pieces and lived with those pieces in the room. Oh, so uh, probably, uh, again, a dysfunctional household to say the least. Jeez. His mental <laughs> illness might be, might be explained away that he grew up with this melancholy. It might have been an issue of genetic genetic uh, abnormalities well, from inbreeding. Definitely ran, ran in the family. Right. Yeah. So he was a recluse. You know, he grew up in a, in a very secluded castle in Madrid. The Spanish one is very strict and formal compared to the Viet, Viennese one. You know, it's yeah, a different, totally different, a different world, time. Yeah. So, yeah. so he, he probably had a rough start in that sense. He ignored the affairs of status we talked to and, and basically abdicated those rights to his chief of staff, his minister. Uh, we all know that the Habsburgs have, have suffered from a great deal of depression. He uh, uh, was said to, you know, have other dalliances with men as well. So uh, we, we don't quite know this for sure, but we just know that... 
that yeah, his, some of this his, could have been by his critics. His you, enemies and know. critics probably wanted to, yeah. to write a lot about him to uh, make him maybe a little less uh, bright in the eyes of the church. He also had hallucinations. He would stare for hours on end at mm-hmm. paintings that he had commissioned of celebrated artists. Remember that you know these kind of surrealist paintings. This is why that's important. That, or at least, at least this is where the theory comes from. Is that these paintings were just so out there. And again, look at the look at look at them in the blog. I mean, if you see them, you're like. Well, you, you see a stalk of celery as his nose. You see, yeah. you see a couple tomatoes uh, that is so your, way ahead of its time I, in, in one sense and way out there in another sense. I could so. definitely see you hallucinating and saying, uh, this is going to be an interesting trip watching, watching this painting. His mother died as a complete madwoman. He had a rough, ro- uh, rough road to hoe, as we would say, and uh, he didn't really succumb to this melancholy or this madness until a little bit later in life. Well, yeah, I mean, there, there's a good side, like, in, in, you know, coming back to this, to the tolerance, right? So it wasn't all like he was just locked up in his collection and, and being kooky or, uh, you know, in his alchemist lab, but bringing the artist to Prague, he also, so scientists, doctors, it was kind of a, a golden age uh, for many different fields of study like medicine um, alchemy Prague is still famous as an alchemy city and that was all him one person I, I like to mention is uh, Jan Yesenius who you actually we mentioned him on your previous podcast with the underground so Jan Yesenius his check name is Yesinski was a Protestant professor of medicine that taught at Charles University and he is one of the 27 noblemen that was beheaded that's why we brought him up in the you know basically the event that started the 30 years war but under Rudolf II, he had he enjoyed patronage, and and um, he so he did the first public autopsy, which which we also mentioned. But that would have been banned in Catholic countries. Dead body was something sacred; you need to you know put it in the ground and and you know not mess with it and, and cut it open and everything. Medicine progressed. I mean, Yanisinius was one of the people that advocated looking at anatomy in anatomy, not out of a textbook. And this is you know very interesting thinking. I, I would I would say that if you were a witch. <laughs> considered a witch, if yeah. you were uh, a sorcerer, if you were a, 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 a scam artist, if you were mm-hmm. a scientist, an artist looking for some freedom to, to talk about what you do or your, perfect your craft, you made a beeline for Prague. In fact, there's a, there's a couple of specific examples. These are all kind of interesting people if you want to look them up. One is Francesco Pucci, Jacobus Paleologus, uh, who was a former Dominican, but then uh, Giordano Bruno, who was in fact later burned by the Inquisition, I believe in Munich. So, I mean, these are clear, like from the church point of view, heretics that kind of fled to Prague. I think that proves it. it. As soon as you and left Prague and Bohemia, you were burned. Bad, bad news, yeah. yeah. Some, of the, some of the alchemists he brought to Prague, which uh, will be their own episode, for instance, was um, John D. Edward Kelly, uh, famous astronomers, let's say slash astrologers, Tycho Brahe, who was first and foremost a mathematician, and Johannes Kepler, very famous. Both of those pairs of people deserve their own episode. But to come back to the alchemist in Prague, so Rudolf II really, he gave the city a reputation, which it still has today, and you can still see some of these things. Uh, For instance, let's say spitting distance from the astrological clock in Prague, there's a house of the two golden bears, which is the oldest dwelling still still standing in Prague today. It's built in 1567, so, you know, Rudolf's time. And uh, there's just all kinds of symbolism and, and interesting things in the facade of the building. Which most people just walk right by, and and this is this is if you're walking from Wenceslav Square to the Old Town Square, besides the Charles Bridge, the two main touristy things to see in Prague, it's right on the way, 
And I've literally, you know, when I was a tour guide, I would give tell the story of, of the two golden bears there and just watch thousands of people, a throng of people. Like, it's, it's actually difficult to, to get your way through there. That's a tiny alleyway. In the, in, in the summer, it's just shoulder to shoulder. I'm sure. And people just passing by having no idea what this building is, you know, and it's just fascinating. Two golden bears, and they actually they look like two stone bears unless you take a picture of it with flash on. Uh, you know, which is definitely some alchemist magic there. There's symbolism there. Um, you know, supposedly Ursa Major, Ursa Minor, you know, the big, big and little dipper. There's two knights there that you know, could be taken as the cycle of life. And there's all kinds of uh, hidden symbols in all these alch- alchemist places. There's other houses throughout Prague that um, even today, even if the house itself doesn't stand, there's still statues kind of commemorating that at one point this was an alchemist laboratory. Then you get to the Prague Castle itself, like the Golden Lane. There's a few kind of famous stories of alchemists living there. One mysterious man that uh, supposedly just toiling away his whole life and then ran out of the door in kind of a eureka moment and then said, I did it, and then dropped dead. Um, <laughs> and, took, so and took the secrets to the grave. We don't know what he did, he did but, <laughs> but um, there's, there's, a, there's a lot of stories. Of, what, some, about, what about the story about where there was not much left but holes in the ceiling? This is um, another building. This is this is outside of the castle, kind of near the river. This is the building I, I kind of mentioned that was built in the 1930s, but there's a, there's a devil's statue there. And supposedly what that commemorates is it used to be a, an alchemist lab with several alchemists were living there. And at some point, the alchemists just disappeared. They, no one was getting rent. No one knew what happened. They were just gone. And when they went in to investigate, they found these holes in the roof. And so to make sense of all this, they figured, well, the, you know, obviously to make gold, you need to sign away your soul to the devil, right? Duh. So uh, eventually this devil came to collect and pulled them up through the roof. And more likely story is that the alchemist kind of created a few uh, explosions. Combustible issues. Yeah. <laughs> combustible <laughs> issues, yeah. And then and just – You can see my air quotes right now. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and then know, just kind of split. So. And, and, and as you listen to future podcasts, we say a lot of things that are legends that are hard to believe as part of, of, of the history and legacy of, of Bohemia mm-hmm. is to tell these stories that have maybe sometimes only 5% truth. <laughs> yeah, maybe a lot of maybe more legends, truth than sure. that. Yeah. Uh, but it's something that stays with – the folks here. The thing about Rudolf II is that he purposefully brought these interesting people in, these interesting characters. You know, we mentioned Rudolf himself had a laboratory. And to, to give you just a, a quick overview of some of these characters, Kepler and Brahe, maybe people know, this, you know, this is the, the, the astronomist duo, let's say. And, uh, but even these guys, they, one, of the, one of the purposes to get better readings of astronomy was to have better horoscopes in astrology. But Edward Kelly, uh, so these are British alchemists, and they came to Prague. And Kelly actually, um, who I'm going to go out on a limb here and say he was a fraud, just out for the money. And I'll, I'll tell you why in a different episode. But um, he actually became a Czech citizen, so he, he stayed. And then he lived in Librece, in Nova Liban, and uh, some nine other villages. I mean, I moved around. But in the end, he died penniless. By drinking poison, his family was disinherited. So he actually Liberitz is a, is a is kind of a let's call it a chateau. I mean, so he he had a lot of money at some point, but he was found out maybe uh, lost grace, hard to say. But in any case, his his son was last heard of twenty years later in Most, which is a, a, a town in Czech Republic. A court phys- a court alchemist actually, so one that Rudolf actually you know had in the castle was a Polish alchemist named Michael Sedzivoy. 
So this really kind of contributed to Prague's reputation as a mystical, you know, let's say, occult city at the time. But it didn't necessarily have a happy ending for a lot of these guys. This is a great opportunity to bring up the Powder Tower in Prague Castle. The story goes like this. Rudolf II was really pressing hard for someone to come up with the formula to make gold. And he brought all his selected group of men and thought, here's the deal. I'm going to bring them to Prague Castle. I'm going to give them one of the larger towers that I had built for gunpowder. And I'm going to clear it out of the gunpowder. And I'm going to basically put up uh, a laboratory and uh, a place to house my learned men of science. And maybe by them being in one place at one time, I can do one of two things. I can keep that knowledge in one place under my eye. And two, I can look at it and say they can come up with the, this idea of, be, of, of making gold. Yeah, think, okay. Think tank of... Uh, a, a think tank. Yeah, um, a think tank didn't go too well. Um, and I'll tell you why. Sanitary issues were, were to blame. There were, was no running water. There was no toilet system. Um, they were kept as prisoners in, in yeah. this tower. Yeah. And if you come to, if you come to uh, Prague Castle, you can actually go through the Royal Gardens to the Summer Palace and look across the, the hunting um, valley that they used to put um, bears down below and, and, and wild games such as lions and whatnot um, uh, for fun, for hunting. You'll look right across to the, to the south end of, of the um, Prague Castle, and you'll see this giant parapet that is where they were housed. It's still there today. Now, I want you to think about the smell, folks. Okay, <laughs> so let's bring it down to Do reality. Do we have to? Uh, you have to. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this is how the story ends, okay? Um, <laughs> yeah. All right, the smell must have been epic. All right. Ripe? Ripe, ripe. Okay, uh, so you have, you have that <laughs> smell going on. You also have the smell of, of, of burning uh, uh, powders and, and elixirs and, and the things that go into a laboratory. Um, they experimented with sulfur a lot. Rotten eggs. Yeah, exactly. Okay? Yeah. Not a lot of ventilation. Mm-hmm. Uh, they would beg, can we please go down to your moat, down where the, the hunting area is, so we can just get a breath of fresh air is what these oh, scientists were imagine saying. Imagine seeing that out of your window, this beautiful green moat, which, you know, it's still a sight to see. You can yeah. walk through it today. And, it's, it's, a know, it's a park today. Yeah. Um, but at the time, so Travis, what did they do as their protest? The, the thing is, basically they, they shaved off their beards. But this is important because it was believed that some of their mystic abilities came from having these long beards. So shaving this off wasn't just a, a, a simple like hunger strike. This was like now, now we can no longer do alchemy. So therefore, you know, why not let us go, right? And and uh, that didn't work. <laughs> it, it, did, it, it didn't, didn't work yeah. because what it did is it showed up the emperor, mm-hmm. and Rudolph II was just infuriated that he did not have the power over these men anymore. Right. He had pushed them to the brink, and he had nothing to show for it—not an ounce of gold. So. He did what any um, ruler or despot would do. Especially a uh, somewhat loony ruler. What he did to these scientists, he put them in cages, mm-hmm. hung them over this hunting area, and let them die of hunger. Some say let them be eaten by the bears that he released. Mm-hmm. Others say that uh, one, of, one of the uh, uh, novelists at the time or historians at the time from England had witnessed this, and his viewpoint was that these men were in cages and just deteriorated, and yeah. parts of them just fell off, and the bears were happy to, to uh, reap the benefits, is what he said. You guys want to go out in the deer moat? How you like them? Yeah, yeah. yeah, exactly. How you want to go out in the deer moat? It's good that, to be the king, way. all right, yeah. if, if I can use it for Mel Brooks. Uh, so there was a darker side to him, and I, I think he probably was a product of his time. Uh, emperors could not take a lot of shenanigans from sub- subjects where it would cause problems. 
But on the other hand, you know, he wasn't all bad. I mean, uh, he, did, he did do quite a bit of good, besides being a patron of the arts and everything. Uh, one thing in particular was he, he really kind of protected the rights of the Jews. Um, it's interesting, like the, the Jewish quarter here is a, is a special one in Prague. And the reason it's even that you can actually go there in the first place, one story I heard was that in World War II, a lot of the, during the, you know, any, anywhere the Germans occupied territory, a lot of the Jewish quarters were just dismantled. But in Prague, it was kept. And what I was told was that um, Hitler actually made a choice to keep the Prague Jewish quarter intact as kind of a morbid, like, memorial to a lost race. Right? So. However, it was a much bigger territory oh, yeah. of Prague yeah, yeah. at a certain time. The Rudolfinum was, was, so what is now the Rudolfinum, like now... The, Which, where the, the Prague Symphony is mm-hmm. located, permanently So located. the Jewish Quarter was, like, they actually demolished part of the Jewish Quarter to build that building. Yeah, so. and it, it goes right up to the Latava River. Uh, but if you ever get a chance to see that quarter, it is absolutely amazing. But you're right, oh, yeah. Travis, there was a unique connection between Rudolph II and mm-hmm. uh, the Jewish community. Yeah, he, for one, he kind of took his father's lead and he protected... The, the rights, he, he made them more or less autonomous. They had their own courts. He didn't really meddle in, in, in the affairs. In fact, he protected them from the Christian guilds that would kind of bully them out of some areas of business. So they, um, you know, they, they really, especially compared to, to other parts of Europe at the time. In, in fact, you know, Jews flocked to Prague so much that it was the biggest Jewish community in, in Europe or, or possibly the world. And this, is, this is also the time of these famous legends like the Golem and, uh, you know, Kabbalism. And uh, actually, there's, there's a couple of really great stories pertaining to Rudolf II. One of my favorite stories about Rudolf II uh, was his interaction with Rabbi Lowe. Rabbi Lowe was a very influential man, one of the most mm-hmm. influential men uh, in the Jewish religion in, in Europe. And if we could take you back to the, to the 16th century, Rabbi Lowe went out to talk to the emperor. Could you imagine the guile of this man? Um, the, uh, the chutzpah, if I can use, uh, chutzpah, yeah. <laughs> if I can use the Yiddish. Uh, the chutzpah to actually go to Prague Castle, basically knock on the door, and say, I want to have a, a, a meeting with, with, with uh, the emperor, please. Of course, he was turned away. Mm-hmm. All right? <laughs> uh, and so he took matters in his own hand, went to Charles Bridge, Karl, Karlov Most is what mm-hmm. we call it here in Prague, and stood and waited for the procession that happened every day for Rudolf II's excursions across the Latava to the other side of town. And once the carriage and, and the uh, accompaniment came across the Charles Bridge, he stood in the way of the horses and would not move. Of course, yeah. of course uh, Rudolf looked out the window and said, what is going on here? As people were throwing things and, and yelling things at Rabbi Lowe to get out of the way, he went up, bowed very, very graciously to the emperor and said, uh, I need to have a meeting with you, sir, about the Jewish community. To Rudolph's credit, he said, I will agree to this. Mm-hmm. Let's meet Let's meet at your side of town, and we will discuss. Rabbi Lowe offered for him to entertain the emperor in his home, which in itself is amazing that, that an emperor yeah. would actually be attending this. That's why I'm not too sure about how this legend works out, but let's just say that's possible. Mm-hmm. So flash forward the very next day. The emperor comes to make a, a visit to uh, Rabbi Lowe's home. The home is unbelievably decorated with just wonderful carpets, drapes of the finest types of tapestry. And probably against his expectations. I mean, if you go, basically you're going to the slums, right? And you're, you know, you're going into, you know, who knows what his expectations were. Like, okay, I'm going to go uh, literally to the ghetto, and you know, may, and, and, and go to this, go to this guy's house. he was going to appease the Jewish community, knowing mm-hmm. that he By was going to uproot so, them. Yeah. Uh, uh, but he was going to make the effort. 
to his credit, all right? So he goes in and he sees marble staircases. He sees this amazing deal and he smells a, a feast being prepared for him by Rabbi Lowe. And Rabbi Lowe was very gracious and, and really catered to such a, an amazing guest at his home. They say that Rudolph did not show his expression of surprise. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm sure he was surprised. Yeah. Okay, so he goes in, they have a, a great dinner, and he tries to convince the emperor not to do this to the people. And he's successful. Rudolph II reverses his, his decree, and the, the Jewish people get to stay in Prague. And foster, this fosters in a whole new level of cooperation that you just alluded to, Travis, between the, the Jews and the Gentiles of, of Prague at the time in the 16th century. But there, there is one little thing I, I, I have to say, and I'd be remiss not to say this. During this dinner, if you can imagine the emperor and his, his, uh, his, uh, um, his group of people having dinner with Rabbi Lowe, Rabbi Lowe brought out a lantern. Yeah. A magical, if you can, I wish you could see this, air quote, <laughs> magical lantern. Okay. <laughs> he put it on the table and he lit the fire. And what it was was basically just showing shadows on the wall. But he did it in a way that he showed different parts of Europe silhouette, silhouetted against the wall, okay, including Prague yeah. Castle. Uh-huh. And so just this, and he would tell the, he used this uh, this device to tell to weave these great stories of of his travels and what he knew. And this in itself endeared him to Rudolph II, who loved technology as as basic as this was, but also loved stories and and knowing that that Rabbi Lowe was a very intelligent man. Well, this, he, he had to have him in his Obviously, court. the most likely thing that happened was that, uh, I think this is obvious to our listeners, is that Rabbi Lowe is a time traveler and he brought a projector <laughs> with him. But to Rudolph II, this would obviously seem like magic. So, Oh, yeah. It, it, it would be. I Clearly. mean, I, yeah, you know, I can do maybe shadow puppets on the wall too, but not like this. And, <laughs> right. And not, with nothing on the line. You know, Rabbi Lowe had to have the emperor agree to this or mm-hmm. game over, you know, for yeah. the Jewish community yeah. here. So, um that really endeared him, and they say that Rabbi Lowe would be able to be invited to the castle for debates um, and theological discussions and uh, scientific discussions with the emperor. Mm-hmm. So um, it, it, to be a fly on the wall, man, I tell you what, would be just yeah. amazing to be uh, listening to Rabbi Lowe and uh, the emperor oh, yeah. talking. Yeah, absolutely. Despite all his legacy and uh, you know all the great things he accomplished, or or what we perceive as great things at the at the time, he wasn't so loved. But later on in life, his um, uh, if he was indeed insane or whatever kind of instabilities he had, started to show more and more. And just the fact that he was not interested in affairs of state and he was very secluded and everything, this started to become more obvious and more important. In fact, the um, Holy Roman Empire was constantly battling the Turks, you know, Ottomans at the time, and he just he just wasn't interested in this. He didn't take this seriously, and um, so his brother Matthias eventually stepped in and started to take control of parts of the empire. Um, at first, it was uh, you know Austria and and Hungary and and some of the the more su- southeasterly regions to actually wage the war. And so, you know, Rudolf would send money, but but the empire wasn't actually split in half, but it did have two rulers at the time. His brother finally took control to the point where Rudolf was imprisoned in the Prague Castle. You know, call it house arrest. I mean, uh, Prague Castle isn't exactly a prison, but his, his mental health, you know, kept declining, and he eventually died in 1612, which was six years before the second defenestration. 
and therefore just, just a few years before the Thirty Years' War. When you look at how life changed in Prague following his abdication to uh, his brother Matthias and, and, and later his death, uh, it, it was a huge drop-off. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. th- this era, this golden era of Prague was over. There were going to be some other highlights of uh, of, uh, of of Prague's prominence at different points of, of history. I guess, yeah. If you if you think about it, he was really the last. There was, you know, Charles the Fourth and and some before him. But then after his death with the Thirty Years' War, which um, you know we'll do an episode on that because that's that's a lot of those battles were fought here in in Bohemia and Central Germany, obviously. But but they lost lost 30% of their population. We'll get into that, but, you know, after his death, that's basically it, because in the Thirty Years' War, and then the Austrian, the direct Austrian occupation after the defenestration, and that basically happened until 1916, or 1917, 1918 is when they got their independence. I'd say the only exception was uh, one one blip who was uh, Ferdinand I, who for some reason loved Prague. Yeah, I mean, after his death, you know, his, his collection was scattered in the wind. But yeah, I mean, that's, you know, part of the part of the reason, let, let, let me say that the Prague that I love the most is Rudolf II's Prague, like this, this mystery, this, this mysticism even, you know, the, the, just the, the, the stories, the legends about, you know, even things, the famous ones like the Gollum and, and, and these things, that's Rudolf II's Prague. I think if, if Rudolf II hadn't been in Prague, maybe I would be in another city. Like, you know, that's really the, it's not the only thing. I mean, you know, Charles IV did what he did. I mean, you know, he left his imprint all over the place. But Rudolf II is a really interesting character that's, that's often overlooked, you know, in, in, his, uh, in his extravagant ways and strange eccentricities. You can see, walking through Prague, you can still see uh, his, uh, Rudolf II's fingerprints oh, yeah. uh, here. Yeah. Unfortunately, you mentioned the Thirty Years' War, Many of the things that he had, had built up or uh, accumulated here were scattered to the wind yeah. by the hordes of uh, uh, Protestants fighting the Catholics here right mm-hmm. on the city streets. Uh, many things were burned, looted, taken away. That includes the Devil's Bible that we talked about earlier. Um, the uh, was taken actually back to Sweden. Yeah, um, like all these things we mentioned, the Holy Grail, you have to go to Vienna. The Devil's Bible, you have to go to Stockholm. It, you know, it, right? it, so, it, Prague lost a lot of that. These were all um, in treasures. one room at some point. Well, that'll about do it tonight for Rudolph II. Uh, we were very happy to bring that information to you as well. Tonight's information came from Prague in Black and Gold by Peter Demitz, uh, Mad Kings and Queens by Allison Rattle and Allison Vale. Which he definitely is one. He, he, he fits in. He fits perfectly. in that yeah, pretty, yeah. pretty well. <laughs> 77 Prague Legends by Alina Jeskova, and Esoteric Prague by Yuri Kuchnar. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, another uh, interesting book in Esoteric Prague. Again, fits very well to mm-hmm. uh, Rudolph II's reign here. Yep. Um, well, thanks for listening. Check out uh, historyofalchemy.com for the historyofalchemy.com podcast and let us know what you think. Ideas, feedbacks, corrections, anything at podcast at historyofalchemy.com. We'd love to hear from you. And we also love for you to join, uh, join us over at bohemican.com. Take a look at all the tabs. There are plenty of things to look at on this, on this if you want to know what life is like here in Czech Republic and Bohemia. It's all right there for you to look the, through as a great compendium to this podcast. The weird paintings the weird commissioned paintings. by Rudolf II. <laughs> Absolutely. Take you a will, look. You will see that there as well, and you can listen to a whole history of the podcast we've done here at Bohemican Podcast as well. So, again, thank you so much for listening. We're glad you can take us to, uh, on, on the way uh, to work or listen to us at home. Uh, We'll be back next week uh, for another great episode. So thanks for listening and ciao for now. Thanks very much.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.